This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Looking before you leap, and I love this phrase, and you guys, you've used it for, is it a long-time phrase or a new phrase? Uh, a couple of years. It's even a hashtag. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Hashtag. Get ready for it. Four times that knowing is not owing. So lots of folks sign their names to financial commitments that they don't fully understand. And I can say, um, I have signed my name to financial commitments mm-hmm. that I've not fully understood, right? Yeah. I mean, because sometimes there's pages and pages and you go, whatever, and I just trust. Well, think about the iTunes service agreement or Facebook. Has anybody read the terms of service? But you just it's coming back to bite. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just up. Yeah, yeah, totally. So serious consequences, four basic examples of knowing is not owing and checking these financial, potential financial hazards before making a commitment can save you stress and money. Um, so what's the first one that we need to, that we can put under that uh, that title, knowing is not owing? Well, taking on new debt. That's definitely a situation where you want to look before you leap. You want to take the time to ask all the right questions. Um, you know, some really basic areas to review, regardless of the type of the debt, um, is first off the repayment terms and interest. So you're getting money advanced to you. You know, when do they want it back? Um, you know, when are payments due? Is going to take it directly out of your account on a certain day, or they depend on you to make the payments proactively? what portion of your payment goes to the principal and which to interest. Um, so this can be interesting too, because there's certain lines of credit you can get that are just interest only. Um, and if all you do is pay interest only every month, you'll never pay down this debt. Yeah, so never. you know, as long as you know that going into it, that's fine. Um, but if you think you're making progress every month and you're just paying interest only, well, then you'll get a big surprise in a couple of years when you look closely at the statements and see that you owe pretty well what you, the same as when you started. Now, I know one of the pieces, too, about the penalties for missing or making late payments, Mm -hmm. but there's sometimes penalties uh, for wanting to pay it off sooner. Yeah. And and that, I just think, is morally wrong. Oh, man. And those but can be is. can be hugely significant. If we're talking a mortgage, for yes, example, I have I people in my office, you know, there's a thirty, forty thousand dollar difference oh. in, in mortgage penalties. I'm like, wow, that's a nice day for the lender to make to make that yeah. all all at once. You know, that just yeah. I like I say, I just don't think that's right. If if you're in a position that you can get rid of this debt sooner rather than later, yeah. I think. But anyways, that's just my thing. Uh, so penalties definitely for missing your late payments, and of course, yeah, penalties for making a. a wanting to pay it all off sooner. Yeah, there can be that. And again, it's all got to be clearly spelled out here. So there's going to be a legal document. It's going to be written in legalese for sure here. But if you take the time, you know, you'll see all this stuff that's there. And it can be pages of this stuff too, which is the other annoying thing. For the layman, for like somebody like me who has no financial background at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not a level playing field at, at all. That's so, what I feel. Right? Yeah, so, you know, for folks that are lucky enough to maybe have a trustee in the Rolodex, for example, exactly. or, you know, a lawyer or an accountant in the family, they've got someone that they would they would go to. Um, you know, obviously anybody listening, they could call Sands and Associates and, you know, bring in a new agreement that they're thinking about. We can look at it and you say, well- You would do that. Of course, yeah. Nice. You know, here's some potential pitfalls. Here's what we've seen with other clients. Yes. Um, you know, one thing that I see people do quite a bit, uh, and sometimes this is really buried into the fine print, but is to sign on to all 
all of these weird insurance and protection programs, mm. you know, balance protection insurance and disability protection insurance. And, you know, sometimes if you don't sign on to those, the bank starts to outbound call you with telemarketing saying, oh, this is a great program. You really should sign on to it. And, you know, a guide for me is the harder the bank is working to sell it, usually the less value it is to the consumer. Um, so the number of clients I've had where they just can't believe, oh, I've been paying 15 bucks a month for balance protection insurance for years. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, it was clearly in the contract that you signed here. And that 15 bucks a month has just went to pure profit on the bank side and done nothing for you in terms of helping you pay down the debt. I remember when I bought a car once, a bre- it wasn't a new car, it was a, a, a previously owned car. And I felt like I was really pressured to take on this other piece of insurance. Mm-hmm. And I can't even remember what it was for now. It was a number of years ago. And um, I was sitting there by myself and I was at the car dealership. You know how they always oh, yeah. often will have an insurance person either yeah. working in their office or or comes in. But anyways, and I, you know, I felt being I was taken advantage of because of that. And and there was something that played on me that he said uh, about the insurance and why it was important. And it just seemed like, well, of course I'll take that. Like why wouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. And I've always regretted that. It didn't cost me a whole lot of money, but it did cost me money for sure. And yeah. you know, it's ah. Well, no, Elaine, and you you thought about it after the fact, you went into the detail about it. And if someone even looks at these balance protection insurances, you know, yes. if you look at it, all it does is it just continues to pay your monthly payment in the event that you lose your job or become disabled for a period of time. We know just paying your monthly payment really doesn't get you anywhere, right? You know, you're going to be on the 60 year cycle, the 80 year cycle to pay off any reasonable size Fair of a enough. debt. Yeah. So many of the insurances, all they're going to do is help you tread water. They're not going to actually solve a problem, which is what insurance is supposed to do is supposed to solve a problem if you need it. Right. Good point. Yeah. That's really important information. Um, other things that should be really clear about when the payments start and when the last one is. Yeah. You'd want to know the term. Is this totally. is this open-ended? Again, can you pay it off at any time? Is it over a specific term? Um, you know, you generally want to have the ability to plan out the next you know, three to five years of your finances and know how this debt is, is going to impact. And then that last one, of course, the one that I asked about paying it off early without penalty. Mm-hmm. And that's just something that's not done anymore, right? Not often because most people don't have the ability, unfortunately, right? Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What about the commitment to pledge an asset to secure the debt? Yeah, this is one that you've really got to be careful about because sometimes it's really obvious. If you're getting a mortgage, of course, you've pledged your house. If you're getting a car loan, of course, you've pledged your car. But there are some um, local community-based lenders um, and they'll offer financing where they'll actually take security over your personal household items. And the way my clients have related to me is, you know, you'll be sitting in the office, they'll try to get you approved with no security and they'll come back from head office. Well, a little bit risky. We're not sure about this. And usually you're borrowing money at, you know, 20 or 30%, like quite high fees anyway. Huge. Uh, high interest cost. So then what they say is, okay, to get head office comfortable, uh, why don't you just tell me, you know, do you have a bicycle at home? Do you have a TV? Do you have a couch? And they start to write all these things down. um, And then you sign a few more documents that maybe you didn't read closely. And what's happened is you've given that lender security over your personal household goods. Now, are they going to come and seize your bicycle and your television? Well, probably not, but they have the right to do so. And the fact that they have that right and they will threaten that and say, we'll be at your door to take these assets, you know, that's going to create a whole world of stress that you would and have to be subject to if you had not pledged assets as security. Exactly. So. It's, yeah. And I, 
and I don't know, maybe this is uh, taking us off track for a second, but in a consumer proposal, I remember we've talked about before, the fact that you can't lose those things. Yeah. Somebody can't come in and take them. If you filed official documents and, and it's a consumer proposal that you're going to pay this money back, nobody can take your stuff. That's exactly right, Elaine. That's the point of a consumer proposal is you make a settlement offer with your creditors and that's in lieu of you surrendering any of your assets. Yeah, which could be your couch and your TV and your bed and your car and yeah. Depending on its values, right? And what, what's really perverse about the whole situation here is the law in BC basically says, you know, even if you were sued in court, it's called the Court Order Enforcement Act. If you were sued in court and they needed to enforce a judgment and start to take your property, the province of BC says, hey, wait, there's a certain exemption, a certain amount that people are allowed to retain. It includes their household furnishings. It includes their clothing, their medical aids and things like that. So the government says you need this and you never have to lose it. But if you go and sign it away, well, then you've just contracted out. Right. of that protection. Lost so that protection so be again. very careful. I've never seen anyone who said, hey, I'm happy I secured my household goods here. <laughs> Most people really regret it if they even knew that they did it at the time. Most people don't even know it. Right. Uh, co-signing is one of those things. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the answer here, is, as we talked about in a few segments, is just to really understand that if you're co-signing, you're agreeing to be responsible for 100% of the debt. And if the person doesn't pay the money back, you're going to be held accountable for it. So when you co-sign, I really encourage people, you know, when the pen's in your hand, think about the worst case scenario. Think about if the borrower never pays another dollar on this debt, would I still sign my name? Would I still be okay? And would I have to pay if I co-signed a debt, let's say for $5,000 and the person wasn't able to pay that mm-hmm. and then the lend uh, the uh, bank or whoever comes to me for it, am I paying that plus all the interest owed as well or am I paying that? It depends. Um, and most of the time, it's the answer that's not to your advantage, which means you're paying everything because most of the time it's an unlimited cosign or an unlimited guarantee. So, you know, if they had to incur legal fees, for example, to try to pursue on the money, they might add that to the debt. Got if it. Or a bunch of other fees, default fees, over limit fees and things like that. Okay. Usually if you cosign, it's not for a certain fixed amount. In the best cases it is, in the most sophisticated cases it is, but for the vast majority of cases, you're just signing to be just another borrower there and they'll throw you know, everything at you at that point. Okay. <laughs> one more reason not to, one more reason not to do it. Well, and you know, one pitfall here to, to really focus on also, Elaine, is the idea of a supplementary card. So if you get a credit card, the credit card companies or the banks are always saying, you know, why don't we give one to your husband or your wife? You know, yeah. let's get a supplementary card. You know, maybe it's $50 for the year. Maybe it's nothing, you know, just a, an extra benefit for being a great client. But what happens is quite often the person who's got that supplementary card is implicitly guaranteeing the debt. So they could be held accountable um, if the primary cardholder is unable to pay the debt back and has to do a proposal, for example, the supplementary cardholder might find the bank coming to them saying, well, you're another pocket that we're going to start digging into. And then you say, well, I just got this card. I've only used it a few times. Well, by you using the card, you agree to be responsible for all charges. Right. So you got to be careful about supplementary cards. Very careful about that. Um, now, uh, marriage. That comes under that this category too, right? Four times knowing is not owing. Yeah. So, and, and this is a positive part of it. This right? is really positive because if yeah, if you're making decisions as a couple, the worst decision usually is for you to just pool all the assets, pool all the liabilities, and treat them the same. Um, because if you assume that one partner owes what the other partner owes, um, then you would do it that way. But there could be a situation where one partner is quite financially secure, has a lot of assets. Maybe the other partner has a lot of debts. The wrong answer for the couple is to take one partner's assets to pay off the other person's debts. You would do that if you thought you had no other option and everything is pooled automatically, but it's not. You know, essentially one partner could take action to deal with their debts. 
the other partner could preserve his or her assets without a problem, and the whole family could be much better off by just knowing that just because you're married, you're not marrying the person's debt. It still be, it still remains individual. Yeah, and then and then it also made me think of the the great uh, debt counseling that uh, that Sands and Associates offers too. In the situation of one person is done the com- consumer proposal and is clearing up that bit of a, a an issue, and the other person is free and clear. But boy, oh boy, it's a good idea that both of them go in. Yeah, because you know it's often. It's not just one person often that uh, has taken them over the, or you know, taken themselves to owe a lot of money. Uh, it's maybe lifestyle stuff that mm-hmm. they can look at. And- yeah, for counseling especially, we encourage you know both partners to come in to attend, and, and they usually both get a lot out of it. And the last one, and we'll just mention it briefly as we wind up, is debt management. Yeah, you've just got to be careful who you take advice from and understand that not all debt professionals are tre- are created equally. So if you're dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee, obviously at Sands and Associates, we're very proud of our approach to client service, but we know every licensed insolvency trustee is reputable and competent. If you're dealing with anybody other than a licensed insolvency trustee, you might be getting very bad advice. You might not be getting something that's going to solve all your problems and you might be paying fees with no guarantees of results. So be careful. Excellent. Go to the website. Sands and Associates has a really great website, sands-trustee.com. There's just pages of really good information, frequently asked questions with really good answers. And then if you want to take it a next step, give them a call. They've got a 1-800 number. It's 1-800-661-3030. Get that free consultation. And then to find an office near you, it's such an easy thing to do. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is great. I love this segment, Blair. It's about all the reasons to get a plan. And that's the key here, is a plan. Work the plan, plan the work, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. to be debt-free. And if you need any kind of motivation to make a big financial change, here are the good four reasons. Uh, to get that plan, to get debt free. Uh, so let's, I think, I know you talk to so many people, you and your team, uh, from all over the province. How do you feel a lot of people, or why do you feel uh, people sort of put off getting debt help? Yeah, you know, Elaine, I think the biggest thing is just fear and uncertainty, you know, fear of the unknown, you know, not sure what they're walking into, what the options are, and whether they're going to feel judged in the process, because a lot of people, you know, they're not proud of being in debt. You know, it's not a comfortable situation, and quite often they're worn down. You know, collectors have been calling them pretty incessantly. Maybe they've seen a lot of notices that are threatening legal action against them, so they're usually not at their, you know, most most proud self, um, and they're a little bit vulnerable as well. So a lot of people put off getting the debt help. Almost everybody that I meet with, they say, you know, I regret, I waited, I suffered. It's almost a two-year count it seems, from when most people know, hey, I think I've got a debt problem, to when they're in the door working with the trustee. Anything we can do to shorten that period is just going to lead to people suffering less and recovering sooner and getting on with their lives. So um, what's what's the number one reason that you give people to figure out a plan and get started on it? You know, the number one thing, Elaine, is that you're going to feel a whole lot better. You're going to sleep a whole lot better because you're going to get rid of your debt stress and your worry. And we know it can be completely debilitating 
debilitating physically, emotionally, spiritually, to be in debt, to have obligations that you know you incurred, uh, but you just can't satisfy. You know, we survey our clients every year, and it's very consistent. You know, people say that their self-esteem is suffering, they're feeling alienated and alone, there can be anxiety, depression, poor sleep, you know, even heart problems and high blood pressure. What's so gratifying about my job is seeing somebody at the beginning of a process experiencing this, and then seeing them at the end, you know, walking high, holding their head high, hearing all the great things they're doing with their life, because now, you know, the cloud has cleared. They can, they can see exactly how they can move forward in a future free of debt. You know, it can put strains in your relationships, and quite often, we're not at our best in our jobs when, you know, we're trying to make sure the collectors don't call and our boss doesn't find out, and we're trying to move money around and, you know, accessing things during work hours. So it can really allow you to perform better at work once you've cleared this cloud of debt from off your mind. The one thing I love about you guys at Sands and Associates is that you have a lot of data and the, the statistics or the percentages of, uh, of that can back, can back your statements up. For example, for folks after filing a consumer proposal or personal bankruptcy, 92% said that the debt option that they chose let them feel better. And I know certainly about their financial life, but that would impact every aspect of their life, just like that debt stress does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, debt is not something you can just put into a little compartment and deal with it a little bit of time of the day. It's all-encompassing. It, it can really impact your life more than you even think. And so, you know, knowing that over 90 92% of the clients that we deal with, they're better able to manage their daily lives, you know, with concerning debt or not concerning debt, once they've taken steps to get this under control. Very good. And what, what's your satisfaction rate at the end of this? Oh, it's extremely high. So again, it's approaching 90%. I believe it was 89% of people in our most recent poll that they felt extremely happy or mostly happy with the outcome of the choice they had made to deal with their debts. So, you know, a bankruptcy or a proposal might not be, you know, the most pleasurable thing you, you can imagine uh, to go through, but the survey bears it out that people really see the outcome at the end as worth it. So sitting down with a trustee, you might expect to feel judged. That won't happen at Sands and Associates. We're here to give you the information, to empathize, and to help you move forward with a plan that you can believe in. And it's got to be satisfying knowing um, that you're on the right track and helping people when over 80% said they would have taken action sooner if they'd been aware of the details. And, and just, I, w- I don't want to say just how easy it is because it's not. It's a challenge. It's a, it's a bit of an upheaval for folks to really go through the nuts and bolts of why they're in that situation. But the reward at the end of it of, about feeling so much better about everything has got to be, has got to be terrific to be a part of that process. And, and that's the number one reason, Elaine, why we do this show is to give people that information so that they can take action sooner. So they're not just fumbling around in the dark or getting the wrong information. Um, you know, if, if people say, if I knew, if I'd known the facts, I would have acted sooner. We're trying to give the facts in our show here. Excellent. So what's the next best reason to get a debt free plan that you want to that you want to talk about? Well, how about getting a monthly payment on your debt that you can actually afford? So when someone comes in to see me and when I add up all the monthly minimum payments, I'm, I often I find, well, this is about 80% of your income or 120% of your income. That can't be pleasurable every month. Thing I've got this payment and there's no way that I can afford it. What's wonderful is when you're filing a consumer proposal is a trustee isn't allowed to sign off on it until you both believe that this is something you can afford. 
So we look heavily at your monthly budget. We look at all of your obligations, your income, and the trustee is going to find a payment that's actually going to work and going to get you out of debt. So a couple examples here. Um, you know, we had an individual who had just $9,000 of debt, but it was with payday loans. It was going to snowball. You know, if they hadn't come to see us two years from now, I know it would have been 20000 and who knows thereafter. We reduced that by 55%, and all they paid back was $4,800 at $200 a month over 24 months. They were being asked for $800 a month to satisfy all of these debts, and we got it down to $200 a month and just a two-year term as opposed to, you know, years and years of accumulating interest. Um, you know, one other person, just to highlight, was a self-employed individual. They had some tax debt, which was significant, and the total debts were about $43,000. We reduced their debts by 70%, and they were required to make the monthly payment of $230 for a 60-month term. So again, around $13,000 on $43,000. So a payment that you can afford, you can imagine how much easier it is to live, knowing that you're satisfying your debts, and it's not taking a huge chunk of your income that makes you unable to afford the necessities of life. That's got to be a huge, oh, just a, a relief for folks, uh, just even to hear those numbers that you've just gone through of what people owed, what they ended up paying, and, and how those monthly payments were so affordable. I know that sometimes a person's ability to repay debts isn't possible, but of course the, the planning part is so good. Can we talk about, um, and, and there's a lot of other things that people think about too at the same time, I know that credit scores are an issue for folks, that they pay attention to that. What's the impact there? Well, I think the best for people to realize when you're dealing with a trustee, whether it's a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, what you're driving towards is what's called a fresh start. And that's what it's even enshrined in the legislation is a financial fresh start. So no matter how bad the situation is, you've got this ability to start again. So you're not going to be held accountable for your past mistakes. You're going to be dealing either in a proposal or in a bankruptcy. But once you're finished those, those proceedings, you get to start again, unburdened by all the past decisions you have made. So that can be incredibly freeing for somebody to consider, you know, all this baggage they've been hanging around, um, you know, maybe they went through a very tough time with addictions or with mental health in the past, and we can be a really big part of that recovery of getting somebody back to where they owe nobody anything, they can, you know, have a sense of mastery over their life, um, and just by dealing with the debts, you'd be amazed how many other knock-on impacts that can have in a person's life. How does the rule of 60 math play into this? This is an interesting tool, Elaine. So I call it the rule of 60 because it's a great, you know, 10-second test to figure out, are you actually able to get out of debt without needing the help of a consumer proposal? And what I encourage somebody to do if they're listening is to just take a list of all of their unsecured debts, so credit cards, student loans, income taxes, and things like that, and just get that total amount and divide it by 60, okay? So if it's $30,000, for example, if you divide that by 60, it's $500. That would be a monthly payment to get yourself out of debt in five years. If that's a payment that you, if there was no further interest charged, if that's a payment that you can't afford, that's when you should definitely be considering a consumer proposal because as a consumer proposal, the maximum term is 60 months and you're probably going to be paying back much less than the full amount. Again, maybe 20 to 40% of the debt. So by doing that math, you know, people see if 70 or $80,000 of debt, my God, divide that by 60, that's, you know, $1,400, $1,500 a month in some cases. That's something I can't afford. And that's even before the interest is tacked on to it. So it can be really clarifying for somebody to say, you know, let's not be complicated. Let's divide your debts by 60. Is that a payment you can afford? And if not, you probably need the help of a trustee. 
if you want to put yourself in the driver's seat of and get a plan that's going to help you get out of debt, go see Blair Manton and his staff at Sands & Associates. Uh, for information, go to their website, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, Blair, I love these Mm -hmm. segments where we get to talk about the kinds of uh, all the different things that you've been dealing with the past month. Yeah, topical stuff, what's in the news, what are the client matters that I'm seeing. And um, this time, with being the end of the year, you know, I thought we'd start to look towards 2019. I think it's a good idea. A a few predictions. I don't want to say it's all doom and gloom, but... Well, a lot of it is. Yeah, and and I think information. If you're armed with information, you're in much better uh, shape than if if you just want to, you know, do the the monkeys close your eyes, mm-hmm. don't speak, close your ears, so you don't know what's going on yeah. because it is a bit unsettled. 2019 definitely. There's lots of things that are are not going uh, as well as they possibly could. Oh, there, uh, there's on a big scale. So much uncertainty, right? Yeah, you know, there even is. the whole U.S. and China trade dispute. Yeah. That alone, I was reading today, the Bank of Canada is saying, you know, that could permanently change the productive capacity of the world economy. That, yeah. That's a massive statement to make here. So, you know, obviously things will get negotiated and everything will be fine, but there are some really big factors that are out there. We're not going to focus too much on those. We're going to focus on what we know about, which is Canadian individuals and how they're going to deal with their debts. Good. And I think that's important. Like I say, I think people are better armed with information than not knowing anything. Mm -hmm. So the first thing comes from um, a group, uh, an organization of all the trustees across the country. Yeah, there's an organization called, it's a mouthful, but the Canadian Association of Insolvency and Restructuring Professionals, which, you know, it abbreviates to CARP, which you probably don't need to know and you'll never hear again. Which you are one of these guys. I am one of those thousand members. So every trustee in Canada pretty well is a member of CARIP. And it's an industry association, you know, like the Law Society or, you know, Mortgage Brokers Associations, different things like that. Um, So our association issued a press report recently uh, that we expect insolvency rates to increase in 2019. And the basis for that, and by insolvency rates, we mean people doing bankruptcies or consumer proposals, which is what we talk about a lot on this show. Yeah. And this is based on historically, our association went back and did a really detailed analysis of what is the relation between interest rates and people filing bankruptcies and proposals. And what they found is it's not an immediate relationship, meaning that as soon as interest rates rise, you know, people don't go running to the trustee's office, but it is about a two-year lag from when interest rates start to rise to when insolvency rates really start to spike. Okay. It's, yeah, that's not great. Uh, but it is interesting to know that there is a period of time where... I don't know. I like to think it's a bit hopeful, too, that maybe can be people have an opportunity to flip things around a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. But in any event, yeah. Yeah, and this, not, and this is just history. You know, history yes. doesn't necessarily predict the future, but uh, from 96 to 2000, for folks that remember that we're, you know, perhaps getting mortgages around that time, um, there was an increase in interest rates around that time, and there was a 22% increase in the number of insolvency filings, again, about a two years later. from So from about 98 to 2003, insolvency rates went up quite a bit. Yeah. Um, It happened again in 2004, 2006. Interest rates increased and there was actually a 54% increase in the number of people doing bankruptcies and proposals. So it's pretty significant. Now, why why do you think there was almost double or more than double the amount 
in that period of time than in the previous period of time. Well, as as we've talked about a lot, we just continue to increase our average amounts of debt in Canada. Okay. So, you know, the five-year period earlier, people had less debt. They could handle it a little bit better. You know, even now, people are so much more vulnerable. We're going to talk about that later in this segment. The debt-to-income ratio, it's at record highs just about right. every, every quarter here. Okay. And, you know, from 2010 to 2016, we've all been living in this very nice, low interest rate Super environment, low, right? right? You know, close to zero. Uh, but in the last year, there's been a big increase. Um, you know, interest rates have the highest they are, they've been in a decade, um, back to December of 2008. The bank's rate is now at 1.75%, which for anybody that was getting a mortgage in 1980, for example, that just seems ridiculous. You know, the bank rate was 20% around there. Right. But 1.75 compared to, you know, 0.25 or 0.5 as it was for periods of time, it's a real significant difference. Got it. Got it. And then you talk about um, the, and this is interesting too, so the increase for interest rates sitting at 1.75%, but since the summer of 2017, rates have gone five times. Yeah. Which is, which again, if you look at what has happened, it's a little easier to predict what may continue to happen then. Mm-hmm. A gradual ratcheting up. It's been about a quarter point almost every time, and the bank took a pass on the most recent quarter, but you know it's likely that rates are going to continue to increase. Got it. And it's also, it's bigger than, you know, just what it does to your debt. You know, yes, it makes your debt more expensive in some cases, like a home equity line of credit, a variable rate mortgage. Those are the top two debts that are really becoming a lot more difficult as rates go up. But it also impacts the overall economy because rising rates cause consumers to spend less money. Which is a good thing. Could in, be. In a yeah. sense, for for a person uh, to to maybe uh, pull back their spending a little bit versus continue on mm-hmm. at, at a at a, a, a faster rate. Oh yeah, o- overspending is never a good thing. Right, that's uh, what I'm thinking. Yeah. But I know overall impact for the economy is not great. Yeah, the overall impact of consumers spending less is not just that overspending gets cut back, but actually you know regular spending yes, as well. I understand. So then sometimes that can lead to unemployment, business growth yeah. decline. It can be this just vicious cycle. Yeah. Um. So the summary of the report was that 70% of trustees in Canada believe that insolvency rates will increase over the next five years. Okay, but they're not an idea of how many or what the percentage increase is going to be. There's a wide range of, of, right? of you know potential opinions on that. Um, I can't see it being another 54% jump. Like, that's pretty significant. It is. Um, but I think we'll see double-digit increases over the next couple of years. Okay. Now, uh, are we here on the Lower Mainland more vulnerable than, let's say, well, I won't say Alberta because mm-hmm. I know that Alberta's been hit incredibly hard, yeah. um, but are we more vulnerable yes. than anyone else? Yes, absolutely yes, six ways to Sunday. Okay, uh, regardless of our situation. Yeah, and the reason for that is the debt-to-income ratio for Vancouver residents, um, Elaine, this, this boggles the mind. It's 242% as of June 30th of 2018. That means for every dollar that someone in Vancouver is earning for income, Income, they owe two dollars and forty-two cents in debt. Wow, that's a crazy which amount. Which is a lot. Now nationally, the rate is one hundred and seventy-one percent, so a dollar seventy-one. Vancouver, we're two dollars and forty-two cents. That's a crazy difference, right? But even one seventy-one, that's mm-hmm. not good either. Oh no, it's still that a, surprises and me. And that's you know, and all pretty close to an all-time high. It's been in the 170s in the last, you know, couple of years or so, but it's never approached that in years prior. So And that's the average, the national that's average. That's the average, yeah. So you're taking provinces that where it where it's where they don't have those kinds of levels at all. Yeah. And then we're added to it Vancouver and then I'm, you know, Toronto, I know is, you know, real mm-hmm. estate expensive real estate, etc. And you hit the nail on the head because the main culprit driving it, especially in Toronto and Vancouver is yeah. very high mortgage balances. Uh, again, Vancouver's at 242% 
The only other Canadian province above 200% is Toronto at 208. Okay. And anyone who's followed Toronto real estate knows there's been this massive run up in the last, you know, three, five years. A lot of people overextended on mortgages. So these stats are, you know, scary is, is the word to me um, in that, you know, Vancouverites seem to be more vulnerable than the average person in Canada. Got it. So, um What's the risk? Like, what's the worst, or not the worst case scenario? But what are the bad? What's what's the bad news about that? Yeah, the, the risk um, is that as you know, debts continue to rise. Um, CMHC, which is who put out this study, they're concerned that households might be unable to afford their mortgage payments along with all their other debts, and that could lead uh, to you know difficulty to borrow. If you're already overextended, it's unlikely you're going to be able to consolidate your debts, and could even lead to you know some foreclosures, people having to sell houses when they're not wanting to do so and good luck finding a place you can rent in Vancouver so there could be some folks who are going to feel really overextended and just won't be able to continue doing it forever and my feeling is is because we're talking about this that it's such a it's it's so prevalent that we're talking about it right now as part of this segment in this show that there's probably a ton of people who are already in that place yeah. and experiencing that. I'm seeing so many young families coming into my office, these, even these past couple months, you know, a couple of kids, both working hard, both parents are employed, um, and they're just struggling because, you know, it, real estate has stopped increasing, so the extra equity they thought they could pull out year over year has stopped, and they find themselves with a bunch of extra debt that they're really having trouble making ends meet. So a lot of the times we can help with a consumer proposal, but sometimes the answer is, you know, you've got too much house for what you can afford to service on your income, unfortunately. Right. That's a huge impact. Ugh. That's uh, that's a huge impact. So what else? What else can you tell us? Well, I wish I had something good to say, Elaine. <laughs> I wish you did um, too. I'm finding so much great research out there that you know the the upside is I think people are talking more and more about the personal debt issues that we have, and you know a lot of the purpose of this show is just letting people know they're not alone. There's right. so many people that are facing debt problems, and I came across some great research from a company called Seymour Consulting, who I hadn't seen before, um, but they've put out this 2018 Financial Health Index study, and there are some just really really um, staggering statistics here, 45% of Canadians agree money worries make them lose sleep at night. That's well, an enormous percentage. Oh my God, one in two people, Yeah. right? Yes. Are not sleeping well because they're concerned about money. Um, 39% of Canadians agree that money worries affect their physical well-being. And we know that. We know that mm-hmm. stress impacts how you, your, yeah. your physical being for sure. Yeah, and you know, I know that the the average, you know, bankruptcy or insolvency rate across Canada is about 0.5%. It's about 4 per 1000 people. So, is it 1/100 one of the people that are feeling the pain of their debt are actually getting help? Right. That's what it seems like. It's yeah. 0.4% are actually doing something, meeting with a trustee, figuring things out, but 45, 39%, whatever it is of folks are really suffering these days. And that's what uh, again, the reason why you do this show is to let people know they're not alone mm-hmm. and that there's some things that they can do. Exactly. And and take sort of take control back. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about housing affordability and this research touched on that as well. 70% of Canadians agree that housing affordability is a problem where they live. Um, and I drilled that down to BC. 88% of people say that housing affordability is a problem in where, where they live, which is the highest in Canada. You know, next is Ontario at 70%. So again, a significant gap. If it feels like it's harder to get by in BC, it's because it is. And the, it, res- the research really bears that out. Yes. Uh, financial savings. How are people savings these saving these days? Well, so that, you know, the best practice is you've got probably six months of your, you know, stable income socked away for an emergency. Um, almost 40% of people have a savings buffer of less than 
within two months. And so, I bet there's a huge portion that won't even say that they don't have that. Yeah, there's a big portion that probably have zero. Yeah. But yeah, less than two months for all intents and purposes. You know, if you lose your job, unless you're reemployed quickly, that money is going to burn through very quickly. Right. And then you get all the economic effects of all the other things that we've talk, talked about, and, and that can infa- uh, impact employment as well. Mm-hmm. And um, the the percentage of people that aren't confident that they could get through a financial hardship. That's uh, yeah. that's also a number to pay attention to. Yeah, maybe just one or two more to, to call out here, as I know we run out of time, but this is such so interesting research to me, but it's a majority of people, 55%, are not confident they could get through periods of financial hardship. So that's more likely than not. People are really feeling vulnerable, and if a downturn happened, they wouldn't know what to do. And just the last one here is over a third of people, 36%, have money fights with their partner or spouse. And we know that if you're not sleeping, if your physical health is being impacted, of course, it's going to happen to your relationships as well. So my the thing that I want to close with in this segment is, is a little bit of um, brightness, mm-hmm. because I would think that Sands & Associates and, and coming to see you or going to anybody in any of your offices might help alleviate some of that because you could take a look at everything that that family is dealing with and has and and maybe come up with a bit of a solution for them. That's what we do. Excellent. So for more information on anything that we that we talk about on the show and especially this, their website's terrific. There's a ton of information, sands-trustee.com. I'm Elaine Scullin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to the website, sands-trustee.com, or better yet, give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for a consultation. So consumer proposals, I know that it's not... More and more people know what this is, but for the longest time, it was a bit of a slow crawl to figure it all out. So we're going to talk about what happens after filing a consumer proposal. But Blair, would you start with, um, let's just sort of give a very quick, short summary on what is a consumer proposal. Yeah, it's my, it's my pleasure, Elaine, because, again, I think this is something that people really need to know about. I often say a consumer proposal is the best, most powerful debt solution that you've probably never heard of. Um, you know, even myself, I went to business school, worked at an accounting firm for a long time. I had no idea this consumer proposal existed until a family member of mine had a debt situation and I didn't know how to help. So the average person may not know that this exists, but it's something that can really help in a tough spot. So what a consumer proposal is, it's a means, it's only available through a license and solve trustee that allows you to consolidate all of your debts legally and then reduce the amount that you're able to pay back to what you can actually afford. So it puts everything together into a single monthly payment and what's really impactful is first off, you have no further interest that's charged. So whether it might be you know, a low rate credit card uh, or you know, a standard credit card at 20% or even a payday loan, which just has obscene interest against, as soon as you file a consumer proposal, all of the interest on your debt stops, but it gets better than that what you're actually required to pay back is generally not the full amount unless you're 
you have the means to do so, but most people, what they're required to pay back is what they can afford, and typically that's in the range of 20 to 40% of the debt outstanding. So it can be completely life-changing if suddenly you had all these minimum payments every month, you know, 90% of what you're paying is going to interest, you have one payment each month, everything that you pay goes to draw down a principal amount, and that principal amount is maybe in the range of 20 to 40% of what the total debt is. So it's incredibly powerful, it's only available through a trustee, and it gives you the means of consolidating your debts without resorting to bankruptcy, uh, without taking that, that drastic next step. Okay, so is the first step then going to see you? Absolutely. That, that's where it starts. So it starts with a conversation with a licensed insolvency trustee. Uh, and typically at Sands and Associates, we meet our clients, you know, at least three, sometimes four times before we've determined this is the right option for them. We've compiled all of the information and got the legal documents ready to sign. Once a person signs off on a consumer proposal, and keep in mind, they've paid nothing throughout this whole process. Even to sign the proposal, they haven't made any payments. What happens is the trustee will sit down, work out what we think is a reasonable proposal, and then submit that to your creditors, the people that you owe money to. And the creditors have 45 days to consider this proposal. And what's really interesting is you might say, well, how often do they accept 20 to 40% of the debt outstanding? And how is 99% of the time, Elaine? So what happens in a consumer proposal um, is when I give them a proposal for, say, a 25% recovery of debt, I show two columns in a spreadsheet. I show this proposal, which is what the person can afford. And then I also show if they were to reject this proposal and the person chose to file for bankruptcy, what would they be legally required to pay back? And oftentimes it's as stark as zero recovery in a bankruptcy or 25% back in the proposal. And that's why creditors almost always vote to accept the proposals. Uh, just okay. one other point here. Oh, I'm sorry, Lane, just one other point um, yeah, is that we don't, we don't, you know, I get pretty passionate about this stuff. <laughs> I know you uh, is that we don't need all the creditors to agree. So all you need with a consumer proposal is 50% by dollar value to say yes to the proposal. So, you know, if you owed a creditor money and they're yelling and screaming, say there's no way we'd ever accept a settlement or a proposal with you, well, unless they're the majority of your debt, they are dragged along with all of the other creditors. If a creditor by majority value chooses to accept the proposal, even if it's the government that doesn't want these terms, they're forced to accept them. It's legally binding on everyone, which that can just be an incredible way of getting a really intransigent creditor to really get on board with everybody else because they've got no other option. They can't continue to harass you. They can't sue you separately once a consumer proposal is in force. And I like this. I mean, this includes uh, credit card debt, payday loans, overdrafts, lines of credit, tax debt, student loans, ICBC. Did I miss any of them? That's pretty exhaustive, but, you know, it's almost <laughs> easier to say what's not included, and that's a very short list. So, okay. you know, the only debts that if you file a consumer proposal that it won't directly deal with are kind of the common sense debts that, you know, most people would say, well, yeah, you shouldn't necessarily be able to reduce those debts just morally. And those are things like child or spousal support payments. So if a court has ordered this is your family responsibility, no consumer proposal can reduce that responsibility, nor should it. Uh, a court-imposed fine, so if you're held accountable uh, for something and you've got to pay a fine. Uh, you can't suddenly offer 25, 30 cents in the dollar on that, unfortunately. Uh, the one that tends to, or sometimes can trip people up, and it's one I disagree with, but it is in the law here, is student loans. And it's not the case that student loans can't be included in a proposal. They absolutely can. But the public policy objective here is that the government wants you to make the best efforts you can to earn income before filing a proposal that might reduce your student loan. So if you file a proposal within seven years of the day that you were last to 
student. Uh, during the term of the proposal, student loans can't bother you at all. They're, they're restrained from doing everything. But at the end of the proposal, whatever the unpaid amount is on the debt, so if they got 25 cents on the dollar back in the proposal, they're still able to collect the other 75 cents. They're the only creditor that has this special treatment. And again, incredibly important, seven years is the magic number. So I'll sometimes have people come in to see me. and It's been, you know, six years and two months, and we're considering a proposal. And I say, yeah, we can file one now, and I know that would give you relief. I just want you to have eyes wide open. If we file a proposal, you know, 10 months from now, student loans is treated the exact same as every creditor, and it will not survive out the other side. So that just helps people to make a clear-eyed decision. Yeah, no, I agree. So what happens after that proposal is filed? What happens if there were debts not covered under the consumer proposal, those kinds of things? And I know you've sort of talked a little bit about that already. Yeah, the, the most common ones are your mortgage and your car loan, and those are what's called secured debts, and a consumer proposal is targeted at unsecured debts. So you've got the option if you're filing a consumer proposal, and some people are really surprised about this. They think, if I'm restructuring my debts, I must have to sell my house, I must have to get rid of my car. And the answer is no. You have the option. You know, if you owe way more than what your car is worth, you know, I've seen sometimes Kia Rios, which are worth $10,000 and have $70,000 loans against them. You know, if you really want to continue those payments, I would counsel you against it, but you have the option. But in the event where you want to end that commitment, if there's any loss on a secured debt, you know, if your house was sold and there's a mortgage shortfall they're going to hold you accountable for, all that can be included in a consumer proposal. So in simple terms, if you want to keep your house or your car when you're filing a consumer proposal, you won't have an issue in doing so. But if you do want to restructure things and get out of a secured debt, a consumer proposal can provide you the vehicle to do that as well. Okay. Um, we've got just about two and a half minutes left, Blair. What's the next, what's the next thing that you want to make sure that we talk about in this segment about the consumer proposal and what happens after it? Yeah, so I think, um, as people want, would want to know, if they're filing a consumer proposal, you're not required to make payments for you know, the rest of your life by any means. Uh, the maximum term of a consumer proposal is 60 months or five years in total, and you can pay it off early at any time. But sometimes people have you know, a little bit of, of concern or anxiety, and I understand this. Well, what if my situation changes during the term of the proposal, and I just can't make that payment that I thought I could make? And what's excellent with a consumer proposal is it has the ability to be amended. So if you know your hours have been cut at work or there's been some interruption to your income, you work with your trustee, you can figure out how to file an amended proposal, and almost always creditors will accept those amendments. So you might reduce the proposal from $300 a month down to 150 and your creditors will typically accept that and allow you to continue making the payments in the proposal. If you don't do anything, if you start to miss payments on your proposal, you're allowed to miss a few, but once you miss more than three payments in a row and haven't caught them up, the proposal can fail at that point, which is a tough situation. So definitely you'd want to be in touch with your trustee prior to then. Yeah, and again, I just want to emphasize it. It's a licensed insolvency trustee. Uh, they're the ones that are going to get you through this process. Nobody else has the ability or the, the legal ability to do that. So just really keep that in mind. And these people, Blair at Sands and Associates and his whole team, are just so efficient and so thoughtful about how they work you through this. Is there anything you want to wrap up with, Blair, in this segment? So it's not a life sentence from a, from a credit rating point of view. With a consumer proposal, it's going to drop off your credit the earlier of six years from the day that you file it or three years from when you pay it off. So um, generally within six years, if you sign in this proposal, uh, you'll have it paid off. Your credit will be starting to rebuild and it won't even appear on your bureau anymore. Excellent. 
If you have more questions, go to the website. Lots of good questions and answers there at sands-trustee.com or give them a call. And this is the 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. And get that consultation as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.